to pray with me. Father in heaven, as we open up your word, I pray that you would uh, cause us uh, to focus. Whatever else may have been on our mind, whatever else may be in our minds, I pray that you uh, take our focus off of that, at least for the moment, and allow us to concentrate on this, on this word so that it may dwell uh, richly in us. Uh, there's so much, God, that, that's coming against us, that com- comes against us every time we open the Bible because it's alive, and thus it, it conflicts with everything that is alive but is contrary to it. And uh, there's much of that around us and in us. And so, Father, I would pray that um, as we open up this word, that you would work it deep within us and enable us to see it, receive it, uh, so that you may be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Acts in chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, please. I want to read verses 26 through uh, 40. Acts chapter 8. Read this passage last week, and now we want to pick up something else in it. Hear the word of God. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And as the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they went. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, the, through he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, what I want to do this morning is point out what I think is the key question of this passage. Uh, It's easy to find because it's asked in the passage, and it's asked by this man from Ethiopia, and it's in verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? That is, who is this passage from Isaiah talking about? Who is, this, who is this person? And it seems to me that that would be the question that must have been a buzz in Jerusalem in that day. Who is this passage about? 
Because this, this man, this Ethiopian official, had just been to Jerusalem worshiping. Now it's an interesting situation. Here he was an Ethiopian, an African. But yet he was worshiping in Jerusalem. It may well be, as we suggested last Sunday, that he was uh, ethnically Jewish. That is, in the dispersion time, in the exile time, it may well be that Jews went as far, in fact the scripture leads us to believe this would be true, as, as, as Ethiopia. And thus they, they intermarried there. And thus he would be an Ethiopian. And yet, perhaps, by way of heritage, he would be clinging to Judaism. And perhaps had made this trip before. We simply don't know. Seems to be an important person. Uh, he was, you know, sort of secretary treasurer to the queen. And so um, he, he, he managed all of the treasury there for her. And thus he was able to go to Jerusalem. There he was. And he had just been there. It shouldn't surprise us then that on his way home, as he's reflecting no doubt about what, what he heard in Jerusalem, what was going on in Jerusalem, he's reading this passage from the prophet Isaiah. Because this passage from the prophet Isaiah was keen in the New Testament church as being about Jesus. You can only imagine what the buzz still was in Jerusalem. Would it not have been about Jesus? Could anybody have gone to the temple even decades after uh, uh, the, the crucifixion of Jesus and not, not hear about him somewhere, not be a buzz about this one who had, who had come and who had lived and who had preached the kingdom of God? Not only that, but he claimed these names for himself, that he was the son of man. And everybody in the temple area would know what that meant. It was from the prophet, prophet Daniel who had spoken of this one, the very Son of Man, who was sovereign and given authority over all the earth. And Jesus, this one, came and he claimed that name for himself. He referred to himself often as the Son of Man. Others referred to him as the very Son of God, the very divine one, the Son of God. And this Jesus talked about himself and he said that he was the bread of life. That is, you can't live without me. If you don't have me, you will die because I am the bread of life. And he spoke about being the light of the world. Essentially, he says, you can't see anything. Most especially, you can't see God. And you can't see God rightly unless you see him through me by way of my illumination. I'm the one who reveals God. What a thing to say. And he's saying, there isn't anybody else who is bread as I am. There isn't anyone else who's light like I am. And he said he was the door, the very gate into the presence of God. He said he was the good shepherd. That is, the Lord is my shepherd. He's saying, I'm God himself. I'm the very one who will shepherd you and help you and, and lead you into paths of righteousness and keep you when you go through the valley of the shadow of death and I'll prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. I'll anoint your head with oil. Your cup will overflow because of me. Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life because I am the good shepherd. If, you, if, if you're in my pasture, if you're in my flock, then know that. And there is no shepherd like me. And he also said that he was the resurrection and the life. He says that if you believe in me, even though you die, yet you shall live. Now who else makes those kinds of claims? And then of course he backed that up by not only rising from the dead later himself, but by raising Lazarus, his friend, from the dead. He said, see, I'm the one who has the power over life and death. I'm the resurrection and the life. He went on to say that he was the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way, Jesus said, to God 
except by me. I'm the path, I'm the way. There isn't any other truth. That is, there's no one else. There's nothing that anyone else has done or is that is reliable, that you can really trust, that is really truth. And I'm life. There isn't any life apart from me. And then he went on to say that he was the true vine, that if you want to be sustained, if you want to be alive, if you want to be kept by God, then you must be attached, you must be joined together with him, else you'll die. You'll be like a branch that's not on the tree. You'll die because you won't be connected to the very source of life. These are the kinds of things that Jesus was saying. And then he went around healing every kind of disease. The lame would walk. The blind would see. The deaf would hear. The lepers were cleansed. There was all this talk around him, so much so that he got into verbal scuffles often with the religious authorities of the day. And they had had it with him. And so jealous of him were they, so worried were they of their own position that they had him arrested. They arrested him themselves on charges of blasphemy because he being a man made himself out to be God. And then they took him to the Roman authorities where he was charged with treason essentially, being a rival king to Caesar. And they knew that once that happened, then he would be killed, which he was. And of course we know that he was flogged and all of that. And we know that he was beaten beyond recognition. And we know then that he was nailed to a cross. And we know that he died. But the rumor around Jerusalem, and it was a strong rumor, was that he had risen from the dead. And that was a hard rumor to, to, to do away with because so many people had seen him. It wasn't just this group of believers that may have been fantasizing or even lying, but it was this great cloud of people that had seen him 500 in one occasion. And so that was a difficult thing to, to deny. And then, of course, his followers became so bold, so convinced that he was alive, that they went around everywhere telling people about him, even at the risk of their own lives. And then there was that day of Pentecost when so much power came upon these followers of Jesus and, and people heard the message of this gospel and then, though persecuted, they persisted and then this gospel even spread to a place called Samaria that no Jew could ever imagine even going, let alone taking good news of faith and being joined together with people in Samaria. Ah, and now this Ethiopian finds himself in Jerusalem. And what do you think they're talking about in Jerusalem? Even, no doubt, at the temple in hushed terms. Because you see this passage, this passage from chapter 53, 53 in Isaiah, of which he quotes, was one that, that the apostles, the teachers, uh, the followers of Jesus spoke of often concerning uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. So turn there, turn to Isaiah and actually chapter 52, I want to read the last few verses of Isaiah chapter 52. Then I want to walk us through some concerning this passage in Isaiah chapter 53. Asking the same question this Ethiopian asked. So Isaiah chapter 52 uh, and verse 13. This is God speaking. In these opening verses, and then it moves to Isaiah speaking. Verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. 
and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, and no beauty that we should desire him. And he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I would divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We read that, of course, this morning as our declaration of the gospel, as our affirmation of faith of all of that, that which we believe. Anybody who's been around the Bible at all, anybody who knows the Lord Jesus, sees him just gushing out of this passage. And thus it was that the apostles used this often to speak of, to speak of Jesus. Now, the apostle John uh, speaks of uh, of the passage in verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Uh, he had no form or beauty that we should look at him, no beauty, uh, no, um, uh, no beauty that we should desire him. Um, he speaks of that. He speaks of the fact of who has believed this. Jesus was healing and teaching and thus, and no one still believed him. So the Apostle John says, just like Isaiah said, who would believe him? Who would believe him? And when he was healing the Apostle, Matthew says, this he did to fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah that he healed our diseases. The Apostle Peter speaks boldly from this passage in 1 Peter in chapter 2. Verse 22, he writes this, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. So the Apostle Peter realizes this is about Jesus. Jesus himself used many words that we find here that he was rejected that he was despised, that he was numbered with the transgressors. We know that he, of course, would be um, 
buried in a rich man's tomb, uh, as it says here. And so the early Christians saw this to be about Jesus because Jesus, no doubt, saw this to be about himself. And so when he came back from the dead, his resurrection time, and the time that he was with his disciples then, and he taught them from the scriptures, no doubt he taught them from this passage as well as from many others. And so they would have this passage on their lips. Thus it would no doubt be floating around Jerusalem and people asking the question, who is this about? Because if this is about Jesus, if it's about the Messiah, then all of this must be true. So there came a a great controversy in Jerusalem and it continued on and continues to this day. Some thinking that this servant is indeed the prophet Isaiah himself, just like the Ethiopian uh, said. You can find volumes written that this is about Isaiah, because in chapter 20 of Isaiah, God refers to Isaiah as his servant. And he's the servant of the Lord in chapters 52 and 53. And thus, is this not Isaiah? Others think it being the nation of Israel. Because in Isaiah chapter 41, the nation of Israel is called by God to his, his servant. But we realize here, it isn't Isaiah. And it isn't Israel. And we see that for a number of very frankly, rather obvious reasons. First, the pronouns. For instance, in verse 2 we read, For he, that is the servant, grew up before him, that is God, like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he, that is the servant, had no form or majesty that we, that is Isaiah, and Israel, and everybody else, that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. And so when the servant is being referred to, it's in this third person singular. Uh, the he's and the him's and the his. Whereas the speaker is always referred to in a third person, uh, excuse me, a first person plural. And that is the we's and the us's. And so we see that there are two different people here. Can't be Isaiah, can't be Israel. Isaiah and Israel, there's the speakers. There's another one here who is the servant. Plus there's a number of other things. For instance, this servant is innocent. And yet this passage says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Never would Isaiah have said he himself was innocent. In fact, when he found himself before God in chapter 6, as we read, he says quite the opposite. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from the people of unclean lips. And only that, the nation of Israel, if you read through the scripture, as any nation, would never be able to say, we're innocent, because their sin is before us continuously. As our sin as a nation is continuously before us. It's not saying anything negative about Israel, it's just simply stating the fact of all of us. And so we see it isn't about Isaiah, it isn't about Israel, can't be. There must be another who is this servant, this servant of the Lord. And Jesus said it was him. The apostles said it was him. Philip, saying to this Ethiopian, said it's all about Jesus. This passage, Isaiah 53, continues to be a very difficult one for those who continue to cling to Judaism. Uh, In fact, it is left out of the daily lectionary readings for the synagogues. Uh, the passage before it is there, the passage after there, this passage isn't there. Uh, one noted Hebrew uh, Orthodox Hebrew scholar, 
puts it like this. He said, the reason the prophecy of the suffering servant is not included in the synagogue lectionary, although passages immediately preceding and following it are found there, is the Christian application of that prophecy to Jesus. Jewish study Bible that I have in my library says, this is a very difficult passage. It's hard to determine about whom this is written. We had a friend in my seminary days who was from a Jewish background. And he told us that in his father's Bible, there was a piece of black cloth over Isaiah chapter 53. And the children were forbidden to read it. It's just one anecdotal story in one family, in one situation. But he said that would not be uncommon. Why? Because it's so strongly points uh, to our Lord Jesus. What we have here, beginning at the end of chapter 53, is five paragraphs of three verses each. Quickly, let us just walk through this so that we can, so that we can see it. And again, I'll probably read it again. That may seem redundant to you, but I don't think we can get this passage in our heads too much. But notice this first paragraph. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted... And so we see that the servant of the Lord is one who is wise. In some of your versions it may say, and my servant shall prosper. This prosperity is a prosperity of knowledge and wisdom and action and success, if you will. And so he's wise to the degree that he knows exactly what he's doing and he knows exactly why he's doing it and he knows exactly how to do it and he will accomplish it. That's his wisdom and that's how it will prosper. He will be a success in this And the end result will be that he'll be high and lifted up and exalted. And we know that true. If you were here and you were listening to the call to worship this morning, it was from Philippians in chapter 2. And he shall receive a name that is above every name. The name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because he's exalted. He says his appearance was marred. But look at the outcome in verse 15. He shall sprinkle many nations. And, and again, in this context, everyone would know what that meant. It meant that just as Moses would sprinkle water and sprinkle blood on the people to show that they were cleansed, then he'll be the cleanser. He'll be the one to cleanse. And notice when he does that, kings shall shut their mouth because of him. Do you know how hard it is to get a king to shut up? Now, why is that true? It's true because kings understand themselves to be in authority. They understand themselves to be the, one, the ones who make declaration that if they don't speak, then the country is going to go down. Why? Because everyone's depending upon them to lead and everyone's depending on them to speak. But in the midst of this servant, they shut their mouths. Why? Because they have nothing to say. Why? Because they realize that he's the king, that he's the one. And that which they've not heard, they'll understand. Who has believed? Then we get into this second paragraph. Who has believed what they've heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The truth is, not many believed it. And then it speaks of this one who's to come. And this one who has come in Jesus. And of course, not many believed because he wasn't all that impressive. He wasn't what they were expecting They were expecting someone who had great influence with all of the the key people. 
They were expecting someone who would be strong and, and, and someone who would, who would look the part. But he wasn't that. It said that he was just like a root out of dry ground. Now, if you have dry ground and you see something just sort of protruding above it that looks like a root, you're probably thinking, that's not going to make it. And that's what they thought when they thought of Jesus. He's just like a young shoot. We cut off young shoots. And so why would we think he's going to make it? He didn't have anything attractive. There wasn't any beauty or majesty. Nobody walked by Jesus ever during the course of his life and said, boy, doesn't he look divine? No. They didn't notice him. Particularly until he opened his mouth, until he performed a miracle. But, but they, there wasn't anything that you would look at him and say, that is the Son of God. In fact, he was despised and rejected by men. We know that. We consider the scene at the cross. All these people screaming, crucify him. All these people saying, we don't want him. We would rather have a murderer and a thief named Barabbas than have the very Son of God. We would rather have this man Barabbas to our table, to dinner, than to entertain the very Son of God. What we would like you to do, Pilate, is give us this Barabbas fellow and kill this Jesus fellow. He was despised. The kinds of things that were said to him in mocking, you would never say to anybody unless you desperately hated them and had no self-control. They despised, they rejected him. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief more deeply than we can ever imagine. And these sorrows and griefs didn't just happen at the point of the cross. They happened in the life of Jesus all the time because he knew how things should be. He knew the praise that his father deserved. And he knew always what was in the hearts of human beings. And he walked with that knowledge all the time. I must confess, sometimes it's difficult for me when I'm in a sporting event and everybody's cheering. Now, I'm usually cheering somewhat with them. I'm not a big cheer guy, but that's just my personality. But, but I, I get why they're cheering, and, and that's all fine and dandy. But even me, in the midst of my own sinfulness, at times reflect upon that and think, we don't cheer like this for God. Not that it would be the reverent expression, I don't know, but you get my point. And that creates some sorrow in me. And when I, when I just see the apathy with which we live and, and how much we ignore God and all of that, it brings some measure of sadness to me when I'm in a movie and people take the Lord's name in vain. It brings a measure of sadness to me. I can only imagine the sadness, the sorrow it would bring to Jesus knowing what he knows and knowing deeply into the hearts of human beings. And so he was a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. I know what it's like for me when I hear of cancer and when I hear of death and when I hear of relational problems and all of that I can only imagine what it must have been for Jesus knowing how it should have been knowing how his father had created everything good and yet seeing the impact of sin and, and, mis and how it brought misery into the lives of people and just walking around with that all the time you know, we don't, we don't have any occasions in the scripture of Jesus hilariously laughing. One 
one passage speaks of him being filled with joy. And, and that was a passage where he was joyful that his father had kept the truth from the rich and famous and brought it to the helpless ones. And there he says he was filled with joy. And I think because the burden that he felt when he knew and all of this, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Translate that into saying he probably wasn't that fun to be around all the time. He was despised, we esteemed him not. But then, surely he bore our griefs and our, and our sorrows, carried our sorrows, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That is, we looked at him and we saw his sorrows and we saw the cross scene and we thought, he deserves that. Because bad people deserve that. So he's smitten by God and afflicted. Uh, but of course, he was, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Now this next expression to me, I was trying to think of a word to describe it. I thought of the word profound. thought of the word amazing in the deepest, richest sense of that. thought of the word simply sobering. When I read this expression, think of a word. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Think about that. Then the next paragraph speaks of him that he was oppressed, afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. Why didn't Jesus open his mouth in the midst of this? Why didn't he defend himself? Because in a sense... He wasn't there for himself. He had no defense. Once the Lord had laid upon him the iniquity of us all, he was getting what we deserve. And so there was no defense to be made. Now he could have said, now this isn't my sin, this is their sin. But yet he had voluntarily entered into this. He had voluntarily come to identify with us. He had voluntarily come and said, I desire to do this, to glorify my Father, to save his people from their sins. And so what could he have said? There was no defense to be made. And so he was quiet before his accusers and he took it all upon himself. They made his grave with the wicked, but with a rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. And then we see it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. His soul was to be an offering for sin. But then we see his father will prosper him, and he'll see his offspring. That is, he was doing this in such a way that more would come. He was going to be the firstborn among many brothers. There were going to be others that would come in him and through him and by him. And, and, and many would be made righteous and accounted righteous, shall we say, because he came to bear their iniquities. He bore the sins of many to make intercession for the transgressors. This is an amazing thing. It's, it's about Jesus and all and all that he has done. You see, when people talk about the cross of Christ, when people talk about this thing we call the atonement, that is Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, 
We mean just that he's dying on the cross for our sins. Some of these days have said, well, that's, that's really cruel to do to Jesus. How can a loving God uh, pour out this act of violence upon this innocent one? Isn't that like cosmic child abuse? I mean, isn't, isn't, is that even right to do? And the answer to that is this, first of all. The son, Jesus, wasn't abused by his father. He entered into this willingly. He says, I love them as you love them. And it isn't that there was no pain from the father's perspective. There was great pain for he sent his beloved son in the midst of all of this. And thus you see the son willingly gave himself, gave himself up. And not only that, we realize that God, in punishing Jesus for us, revealed his holiness and his justice and his love to us all in one fell swoop, all in this one occasion. His holiness, that sin is sin and rebellion is rebellion. And yet his love, because he took the penalty for our sin in essence upon himself. Forgiveness in a very rich, significant way is never costless, never free. You know this in your own experience. If someone hurts you and you forgive them, it means they don't suffer the consequences of what they deserve. You've forgiven them. You've freed them from that. So who suffers when you forgive someone else? You do. Someone steals $100 from you and you forgive them. Who's out the 100 bucks? You are. If someone punches you in the nose and you forgive them, who experiences pain? You do. There's always cost. Someone bears the justice burden. And forgiveness says, I'll take it upon myself. I won't inflict you with it. I'll free you. And in this sense, God says, I'll take it. There is a justice burden here. There is a justice issue here. There is a cost here. And the cost is human life. God gave us life. And we abused it. We didn't use it as we should. We used it in a contrary way. And so the justice factor there, the penalty for misusing life, is to take it away. Thus the wages of sin is death. To love us, to express his love to us, God says, all right, I'll take that cost. I'll send my son to die, to take your death, that you might live. So he forgives us, we say, freely. What do we mean by that? Well, free to us. It means it doesn't cost us anything. That doesn't mean it's costless. My former life, we had an expression that said there's no free lunch. Well, if you're out with somebody and they're buying your lunch, it feels free. But it isn't. Why? Because they pay for it. This forgiveness is free to us. Costly. Not only to the Son, but to the Father who loved him 
and sent him and endured it. We have a great cry. It's called theology, theology books, the cry of dereliction. The cry from the cross where Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And rightly so, we look at that and we see what pain and agony there must be on the part of the Son. Because at that moment in time, he's enduring hell. Have we ever once thought of the agony of the Father? To forsake his own Son. And to do something he had never done before ever for that moment to not respond that moment to let him hang it's the love of God Father Son for us now we see a picture of that here we see a picture of that here at this this table because we can fast forward all of this from Isaiah 53 to the life of Jesus. We remember that he, he shows his death by way of a meal. Common meal, if you will, because it was the Passover. And so, as a lamb is sent to the slaughter, this Jesus would go before his shearers, naked, to be killed. And so on this Passover night, Jesus comes to his disciples. Perhaps they had ringing in their ears, at least afterwards, the expression of John the Baptist who looked at Jesus and said, there's the Lamb of God. He's come to take away the sins of the world. So of course, Jesus comes on that night and there's bread at the table and he takes it and he breaks it. Usual for him to do at that moment, the time he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. And this was the unusual part. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this cup to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup you proclaim the apostle tells us the Lord's death until he comes we proclaim Isaiah 53 we proclaim his death that he is the very one who has borne our sins our iniquities that we might that we might live and of course all of this is for those who believe now you don't have this in front of you probably but if you were in Acts chapter 8 in the passage that I read and you were reading it through with me in the English Standard Version, or even if you have a new international version, and if you were following along in the numbers, you would find that both of those versions skip from verse 36 to verse 38, and there is no verse 37, unless you look in the small print. If you have a new American Standard Edition, it's likely to be in the brackets in brackets between verses 36 and 38, numbered verse 37. If you have a King James Version, it's there. What I'm about to tell you. Now, we think it probably wasn't part of the original manuscript. Don't get hung up on that. I don't have time to talk you through textual criticism. But we have a number of New Testament manuscripts. It's not in the oldest ones. It's in some of the later ones, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th century ones. 
We think a scribe probably put it in to make it more clear. Because verse 37 goes something to the effect. After Philip uh, asks, I'm sorry, after the, the Ethiopian asks Philip to be baptized, then the scribe, no doubt, put in, you can be baptized, essentially, if you believe. And the Ethiopian said, I believe with all my heart. That's true, whether it was in the original manuscript or not. That's true. And that's where I want us to be right now in our thinking. Do we really believe this? You know, as this new academic year unfolds upon us, and everything seems to lay out for us as a church, we've had the little summer hiatus and all that, and we've been here, there, and everywhere, and done this and that. And now we're sort of regathering back. The question I think before us is the same question of that Ethiopian. Who's this passage about? Who is the one who bore our iniquities? Who is the one who had success and his father raised him from the dead? Who are these ones who like sheep have gone astray? And the answer, of course, is we're the sheep that have gone astray. And Jesus is the one who's borne our iniquities. And the question is, do we believe that? We believe that. Let me ask you just to bow your heads. Not the nooky spooky. Not going to manipulate you into anything. Just bow your head. Simply ask yourself that question. Do I really believe that? Do I really believe that I am one who strays by the very nature of my being? Do I really believe that that straying away from God, is sin. Do I really believe that that straying away from God that is sin deserves his judgment against me? And do I really believe that that straying against God that is sin that results in judgment means that I'll be condemned to hell lest someone intervenes on my behalf? And do I really believe that that straying away from God, which is sin, that deserves judgment, that means I receive hell unless someone intervenes on my behalf, has been taken care of by this one who has intervened on my behalf, this very suffering servant of God, this one who is Jesus, who's borne my iniquities, that is, taken the penalty for my sin, been numbered among me as one of the transgressors, In fact, numbered among all of us to take all of these transgressions upon him. And that the Father accepted this sacrifice and this payment. Do we believe that? Father in heaven, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that we are able to grasp that, not only understand it, but believe it, to place all of our faith, all of our trust in Jesus, not in ourselves. And Father, we can think through all of the ramifications of that and what that means for our lives, lost without him, life with him, and in him to be forgiven and adopted and declared right by God 
not on behalf of anything that we do or have done or could do or will do, but on the basis of who he is, what he's done. That he intercedes for us, even now to lay out the steps of our lives, to assist us, enable us, empower us in all that we do, to fill us with his spirit, to form his very character within us, and to help us at every turn and one day take us to be with him. Father, in this day I pray it be true of us all. We can all embrace that. And so Jesus, I pray that you would meet us here at your table to affirm that, to give assurance of that. That you would set apart this bread and this juice for the means, for the purpose for which you've intended it. That is, that it might signify for us and give us assurance that this gospel is true you are the very Lamb of God who takes away our sin. That you're the bread of life. That you're all that we need. So please, I pray, meet us around this table. In Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you, this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And he does, in fact, invite to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God, without hope except in God's sovereign mercy receive and believe and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel that is the one who freely gives us forgiveness of sins by his dying on the cross and all those who desire to live a life that shows themselves to be a follower of Christ if that's true for you let me invite you to come these two sections down this aisle to my left these two sections down the aisle to my right And I want to ask you to do something when you come. You don't have to do this because this isn't in the Bible. Uh, And even after I tell you, you could do this. And even after you might say, I want to do this, you might forget. And if you forget to do this, it's okay. It doesn't mean anything. (laughs) It's not a sign from God. But this morning when you come, you take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. Either before you eat it or after you eat it. Could you just whisper? To say it loudly. Just whisper. I believe. So, if you don't want to whisper it with your lips, let it go off in your head. But whisper it. No one else has to hear you necessarily. God's got really, really, really good ears. Just that on this morning, as we come, each of us will profess, I believe. If you can't say, I believe, somewhere in your head or with your lips, don't come, please. And that's not a prohibition in the sense of we don't like you. It's just simply, let's do this morning what is true for the sake of our own souls. So please, please come. Father, it's incredibly sobering to think that you laid the iniquity of us all upon Christ, the innocent one, the perfect one, the one who truly was a servant because he humbled himself in a way unimaginable to us from the throne of glory with all power and all authority. And to become a human being, and not only that, but to take then on the guilt of sin. And so, Father, we're just amazed. We're searching for categories in our brains to even let it sink in. 
But I pray that you would allow us to rejoice in it, to realize the blessing of it. And we are forgiven our sins. Father, even as I say that, I have called to my mind the deepest of my sins. The ones that I find so grievous and yet to realize that they're cleansed. That if I've confessed them, you have no remembrance of them. It's just amazing. And even the ones yet to come still, Christ has paid. And thus he lives to intercede that I'll never lose my place. Thank you. I pray that we're able to walk in that as a people. To really walk in that. To live forgiven. To treat each other as forgiven ones. That we might receive and walk in this grace. And we might grant this grace to those around us as well. Father, we do pray that those who are suffering deeply will uh, most especially know this grace for those in relationships that are having great difficulty, for those who find themselves uh, in illness, for little Caden White and others. And Father, that you would be close to them and to help them and that they would know your grace. For men readying for deployment, uh, Andy Coleman, Chris Tharp, we pray for them and their families, that you would be close to them. For Tim Holzinger and his wife, Tim recovers from this motorcycle accident. I pray for him and for his friends here at Grace who know him and can minister to him. Father, I pray for, for school teachers as they've begun back and for students as they've begun back. That you would be with them this year, that this would be a year, Father, not only of good learning, but of looking to you for help. For us as a church, Father, that we continue to minister in a way that's pleasing to you. Empower us, we pray. Help us. For those who minister among us and from us, we pray for them as well, Father, that you would grant them grace in in all that they do. And even now, Father, may we leave this place knowing as we trust in Christ, knowing we're forgiven and accepted by God. And may that inform every thought, every word, and every action during the course of of this week and the rest of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The response to the benediction this morning is to sing together the doxology, that great uh, praise to God. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And together, let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and holy 